So uh, while we wait for uh, uh, one more panelist, I'm just going to start the introduction uh, and uh, they'll be coming in within probably the next uh, few minutes. So um, hello, uh, good afternoon. Uh, this is perhaps uh, like no um, space or filmic space we've ever done before because this is the most important one everyone's saying. Um, it has often been said that the Fed hikes things until things break. Uh, and last week, we've had numerous bank collapses. Yet, inflation has remained sticky, and uh, the economy has reported better than expected job numbers. Uh, and so we're kind of left here waiting for Powell's words. So I want to welcome everyone uh, for joining and say hi. I'm Unusual Wales. Uh, we have the literal uh, macro greats here on, on Twitter to discuss, and I'm happy to have Nicholas help lead the conversation. Thanks everyone for joining and uh, Nicholas, if you can. Uh, while, while Nicholas uh, does that, I'll just, I'll quickly kind of start with the uh, intros. Um, uh, with people, I'll start with Joseph Wang. Uh, there's perhaps no better person in the world to walk us through what happened uh, over last week. Uh, we want to welcome Joseph Wang, our go-to Fed guy. He headed trading at the Fed's Open Desk, uh, has an incredible book called Central Banking 101. Uh, he's the CIO at Monetary Macro, and uh, he just released a bunch of great macro courses. So, hey, Joseph, how's it going? Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is absolute best spaces. And so, um, so if you guys have been following the spaces for the past few months, we here have kept you on the right course. You've been, we've been spot on about the Fed pivot. Uh, towards pushing out rate hikes into it. And now I'm really excited to hear what everyone thinks the Fed will do. As Unusual Wells noted, uh, we're kind of at an interesting point here where we have competing concerns of both inflation and perhaps financial stability. Precisely. Um, I think uh, Nicholas is back, so I'll let you uh, take over, Nicholas. How's it going, everybody? Who have we introduced so far? Sorry, I came in late here. Have someone at my door. Alrighty, so we'll move right along the line. Looks like we got a nice intro for Joseph. Up next, we've got Jam Croissant. Jam Carson, a leading volatility expert, the founder of Kai Volatility, which you should be subscribed to, an incredibly passionate educator in the options vol and flow space, and a regular on the UW spaces. Welcome, Jam. Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me. As always, uh, you know, big, big Fed meeting here. Uh, I think much bigger than we've experienced for quite some time. Uh, I think there's a whole range of potential outcomes, particularly in terms of what the Fed is is, is going to have to say and do here um, uh, on the heels of this this banking mess. Um, looking forward to chatting today. Kai Volatility. If, if anybody's interested, wants more information from us, go to kaivolatility.com. You can subscribe to kind of our our news uh, backslash news. Uh, reach on, reach out. Absolutely, it's it's uh, a must. So please do subscribe to it. Uh, our next speaker uh, is Randy uh, Woodward. He's a bond investor for thirty years. Uh, was working at Bloomberg from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety five. He's uh, this is his fourth time on our uh, spaces, and he's a great uh, thing for all things macro. Uh, welcome, Randy. How's it going? Hey, great. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, I worked at Bloomberg for about seven years 
And with those skills, basically what I did is I sold Bloomberg's with bonds and I just turned it around and I've been selling bonds with Bloomberg's ever since. Um, I've been selling them primarily, almost exclusively to banks and credit unions over since 1995. So my optics of bank portfolios is probably more intense than most. And a lot of what I've been seeing on, you know, Twitter and media and I hate to mention Jim Cramer, but people like that, that are just saying absolutely ridiculous things about bank portfolios and the difference between HTM and AFS and all sorts of other things they don't know about. So my motivation to be here is to, you know, to bring some clarity to what community banking really is and what they were dealt in 20 and 21. And then what they were dealt uh, by the very quick fed rate hikes to me, a lot of the problems you're seeing is something that they absolutely could not avoid. Um, and it is very much the Fed's doing. And I think this new BTFP program, in my opinion, is to give the Fed a little more time to leave rates where they're at. Uh, but I think cuts are coming soon. There you go. Perfect. Uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, talk about all that. Uh, shortly, not the Jim Cramer stuff, though. But uh, our next speaker is far better than Jim Cramer, uh, Michael Cow. Uh, he's the chief investment officer and portfolio manager of uh, Cow Family Office, having worst, worked previously at Cathanos Capital Management. He's an expert in commodities, index arbitrage, and dynamic hedging, uh, and uh, is actually incredibly funny on Twitter as well. Uh, welcome, Michael. I believe, Michael, uh, you might be muted or having uh, speaker problems. Oh, there we are. Sorry about sorry about that. Always honored to be here. Thank you very much. I'll help you out a little bit with the uh, pronunciation. It's Acanthos Capital. Uh, that was my firm for 17 years that I ran after I spun out of uh, Canyon in 2002. So, so now you can consider me a semi-retired um, hedge fund manager who's just very uh, passionate about the markets, and I just, just invest. Somebody called me. I had to turn that off. Can you guys hear me? Yep, can still hear okay, you. Okay, sorry. All right. So, um, so real quick, uh, I guess I'm gonna uh, disagree with uh, Randy right off the bat about what I think the Fed's trajectory is going to be. Um, I think that um, in some ways it's a little bit um, silly to to talk about uh, whether it's going to be zero or twenty five. Uh, just like, you know, in, in, in past FOMC spaces, uh, wondering whether it's going to be, you know, 50 or 75. I, I've, I've said in the past, I think it, um, it, it's kind of like analyzing the tread depth of a bulldozer bearing down on your head. Um, I think that the Fed's mission, the Fed's trade-off between its dual mandate is not here yet. And despite the, the numerous... Uh, 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 admonitions for the Fed to stop. I think the bigger picture here is that uh, the BTFP facility um, has is basically a surgical ring fenced action. Um, I, I, I sent out some anecdotes yesterday about how, you know, last week uh, I was invited to a number of private chat groups with a ton of depositor angst and you know gazillion messages per second. Um, and this week, all those uh, all those uh, groups have disappeared, and I'm not saying that they're they're 
won't be continued stress in the financial markets. But here's the thing. Um, that's kind of what the Fed has been aiming for over the last 15 months, right? Um, you know, when you when you look at where we are at in the, in the in the macro picture, we've got you know three percent GDP growth, still three and a half percent unemployment. Um, nothing has broken yet, and inflation is the biggest regressive is the most regressive tax of all that that impacts 100 percent of people. So I'll just uh, just say that piece for now, and then um, we'll talk about it later. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. So last but not least on our docket, and then I do want to come back to some of those talking points here from a little earlier on. But first, we've got Bob Elliott. Bob's the CIO at Unlimited Fund, former IC at Bridgewater, and the all-time leader in useful tweet threads during a banking crisis. He's a friend of these spaces. Let's give Bob a warm welcome. How are you doing, Bob? Hey, how's it going? I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was uh, been a, a busy couple weeks uh, around here for sure. Um, thank you for having me. This is, you know, always uh, such a great space and and such a jam packed lineup here of of insights. So really happy to throw my two cents in here and and offer uh, whatever thoughts I have. Thank you much. Always, always a treat to have you here, Bob. Thank you. So I'm going to go right into this. We had some good discussion there, especially with what Michael was saying a moment ago. So let's get into what Randy and Michael were saying. Randy, you had said that what occurred with the banks was unavoidable. Can you let us understand what's going on and why regional banks and their risk were not to be blamed? Okay, I'll try to do it really quickly. Just interrupt if I get too long-winded. So you have basically... March 2020, uh, we have uh, rate, you know, the Fed starts to hammer rates lower. And more importantly, they start buying trillions of mortgages. And so that's crushing mortgage spreads. Now, personally, I still don't know who was in trouble. I don't know who they were saving by entering the market. So just as a rough estimate, let's just say we're talking about 30 or collateral, which again, by the way, most banks do not, did not buy 30-year collateral. That's one of those things out in the market that everybody keeps saying, oh, they bought assets for too long, and it's simply not the case. But using that as a proxy, uh, you've got a certain coupon, probably around 2% 30-year mortgage-backed securities, getting to about par. And so my clients are buying hand over fist. As, as much as they can, fast as they can. And that's including 15 or 20 or whatnot. Um, then all of a sudden, the Fed jumps in, and within days, it's not par anymore, it's 105. Now, okay, so we got a big serious problem here because this is something I don't think anybody would have seen unless you're kind of in, in my little world, which is very small and opaque. Banks, you know, the, any collateral you owned at a premium going into this situation – well, now you're getting crushed on that because if you owned it at even 102 and a half, and imagine 103, 4, 5, banks that own, and again, any type of maturity on that, well, everything's refined now. You know, they crush mortgage rates around the country, and I think at least 70% of all mortgages in the United States refi during this two-year period of time. So as this is happening, they're taking negative yields. 
on some of what they own. They're literally going negative yield. They're losing money on what these modest premiums they bought. So what's that mean? On anything they got to buy new, they don't want to pay 102 and a half, 103, 4, 5, whatever. So they got to try to get near par. Well, that takes us down even lower into the one, one and a half percent kind of coupon collateral. Well, now, and also remember, we heard lower for longer for a really, really long time. And we heard somebody reminded me on Twitter earlier, I'm not even, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. So we're in an environment where we have to assume this is going to last for a very long time. And there's only, and by the way, we still got to get some net interest margin. So all of this is going on. Then the Fed and, the, and well, probably more so the government puts in a trillion or so more of new deposits into the system. Some of my banks double in size. They have to do something with those new deposits. They're either going to lend them out or they're going to put them with me, which was good for me for a couple of years. And we do the best we can to add, you know, we got to take some duration. We try to do it with cash flow. And so that would heal with, okay, if, if, if we create a portfolio with cash flow, we will heal with time. But now we had the Fed complete reversal, maybe necessarily. And this is what every single bank in the United States is dealing with. It's not just the bond portfolio. It's also the loan portfolio. And things are breaking. And the break, more breaking is coming. There you go. Thank you, Randy. So kind of as we plug along here, per usual, I like to keep things open and fluid. So if anybody has anything to add while someone else is talking, please use that good old-fashioned Twitter hand emoji and chime in. So, Joseph, I'm actually going to come over to you next here. I saw that you unmuted as well. Randy spoke about the bank's balance sheets and negative yields due to the interest rate hikes. So, Joseph, do you agree with Randy or Michael here regarding the bank's responsibilities or the Fed's here? So I think Randy makes some really good points about the asset side of the bank's balance sheet. Uh, no doubt that if you're a bank, you have a lot of loans, you have a lot of securities. Some of them are fixed rate. And so... When interest rates go higher, they, they decrease in market value. But I think we also have to look at the liability side of a bank. So a bank has basically, as we all know, they borrow short and lend long. They have a lot of deposit liabilities. And deposit liabilities can be withdrawn at any time. So what a bank is always afraid of is everyone comes and asks for their money back at the same time. Uh, when that happens, you know, a bank might not have enough cash on hand and a bank gets to a lot of problems. So this is a very basic problem for any bank. And there are many ways to manage this. A very common way, for example, would be to issue lots of CDs. If you issue CDs, then uh, the depositor can't withdraw their money until the CD is expired. So three, six months. So boom, you help manage your liabilities. But for a bank like Silicon Valley Bank and many of the regional banks that we talk about, the more basic way to manage this is to have a diversified deposit base across industries and across retail as well. The reason for this is that um, if there's a banking panic, then if you are a retail depositor, your deposits are protected by FDIC insurance up to $250,000. So for a bank to want to avoid having a panic, you want to have a deposit base that's largely insured deposits. This way, uh, depositors don't panic and you don't have this kind of run that you see in Silicon Valley Bank, or at the very least, you have a diverse, you have a business book that's diversified across industries. So if you have a single industry that's taking a hit, you don't go bust. When I look at Silicon Valley Bank, for example, 
Um, I'll note that about over 90% of their deposits are uninsured. That's extremely uncommon and extremely irresponsible for a bank. So typically a bank of Silicon Valley's size has about 50 to 60% of their uh, deposits insured. So about maybe 40 to 50% will be uninsured. So Silicon Valley Bank was basically um, doing a really poor job managing their liabilities. And I would also note that the banks that we see have trouble now, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, both kind of did this. Now, First Republic, not as bad as Silicon Valley Bank, which was an extreme outlier across the banking sector. So I think of what happened, not so much as the Fed's fault, but as in a few banks that, to be honest, most of us have never heard of having some problems. And also note that these banks, Signature, First Republic, uh, Silicon Valley, they're heavily exposed to industries that were not doing well, venture capital, crypto, stuff like that. So we have 4,000 banks. The banks are businesses. Some of them are badly run and some of them go bust. I, I see this as uh, much more micro than macro. Of course, what the Fed did did not help. So um, I, uh, I, I think that this is not a really a, a major regional crisis. Major, so it's a crisis in some parts of the banking sector, but not a systemic problem. So I lean towards uh, what Michael is saying. And uh, so that is, okay. And when you're talking about monetary policy more broadly though, I think it's important to separate um, what's happening in the real economy and, and what's happening in the financial economy. So right now, some people are looking at what's happening in this, which I believe to be more of a regional problem um, and thinking that this Fed is going to cut rates and so forth and so forth. That's a huge problem for the Fed because there are many parts of the economy that are doing fine. And when the markets begins to believe that the Fed is going to be cutting rates in the future, then you have the potential that, um, let's say, mortgage rates go lower, uh, housing reaccelerates, many other parts of the economy face lower borrowing rates and they accelerate as well. So I, this is a, I think it's a challenging place to be for the Fed. Thank you, Joseph. Michael, I see your hand up there, and then I've got a question to kick over to Bob. So, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to uh, riff a little bit on what Joseph said about uh, the, the fundamental problem, which at the center of all financial crises, which is asset liability mismatch. And of course, you know, it, it's, it's always most acute in banking, first and foremost, because of the short term nature of uh, or the liability side of the balance sheet. Um, but I agree with Joseph that, you know, I, I think this is a pretty uh, idiosyncratic situation to begin with. Uh, and then if you then lump in the BTFP facility uh, and the fact that the uh, that the discount window has been open, um, these are, as as uh, Joseph has so eloquently put it, this is liquidity uh these are liquidity tools provided at a restrictive price. So the bigger picture I agree with is, is still going to be a tightening bias to rein in uh, the inflation genie. But I do want to say that um, to extend this asset liability uh, uh, mismatch issue, my, I think we, we might all be focused on uh, the last war, which is GFC. And I really don't think this time the crisis is going to be in the banking sector. I think it's more likely to be in some somewhere in the shadow banking sector where it's 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 much less regulated. And my definition of shadow banking 
is all financial intermediaries, right? So in the world of hedge funds, um, venture capital, private equity, endowments. And so obvious, so coming from the hedge fund industry, I can just say that, look, I've in 2006, I myself experienced, sorry, 2000, yeah, 2007, I should say I experienced some of this because, you know, I had a, I had a very large LP uh, that was exposed to the Amaranth blow up in 2006. Um, and they, uh, unbeknownst to me and other managers they were investing uh, with, um, had promised their LPs 30-day liquidity when they were invested in quarterly and annual liquidity managers. So when they started getting redemptions uh, because of Amaranth that blew up in 2006, uh, in 2007, they wound up having a major asset liability mismatch, and they had to put their entire $4.5 billion fund of funds into liquidation and essentially redeem from all investors. So I, I was on the other end of this, which was very, very harrowing because it, it also careened into the events of 2008 for me. Um, so, so that's an example of how an asset liability mismatch can blow up uh, in the hedge fund space. And of course, in, in, uh, in 1998, we saw a, a spectacular blow up in LTCM, right? Um, uh, but, but, but it can also happen in longer uh, lived vehicles like venture capital and private equity, because one of the fallouts that I foresee from this uh, Silicon Valley uh, bank failure is that you know despite the the ring fencing and protection of the depositors um credit to that sector is going to be very very tight now and so you're going to have a bunch of vcs that are going to be uh thinking shit um you know a bunch of my startups are not going to survive unless i provide follow-on capital uh what does that mean they're going to start issuing capital calls and then the capital calls invariably come to uh, LPs and uh, endowment funds and pension funds and teacher retirement funds at a time when they're probably getting their asses kicked elsewhere uh, in the markets. So to me, that's th those hidden icebergs are what I what I am looking for, and that that is and, and and so then the question is whether or not it's going to be a too big to fail type of situation like LTCM was. And right now, um, despite a couple of hedge fund blowups last week, uh, that's just not the case. So I, I just don't, uh, until unemployment meaningfully ticks up, I don't think the trade-off between the Fed's inflation fight versus, um, uh, versus uh, you know, uh, uh, price stability uh, is here. It's just not here yet. Thank you. So now real quick, Randy, I do see your hand, but I want to kick over to Bob here first, then Jem, and then I'll come back to you, Randy, to get your comments on everything that's been said. So first here, Bob, there was, excuse me, was there an asset liability mismatch or should the Fed take more responsibility? For reference, looking at FRC, PanW, and other regional banks, they saw huge withdrawals the last week. Well, I, I think... Um... The basic, the basic question, if we go back to where we were 15 years ago, uh, when I was uh, a young lad focused on figuring out whether the financial crisis was going to be a big deal or not, um, what the problem there was, was that there was a bunch of crappy loans 
and securities holdings by extraordinarily highly levered banks. And, um, you know, and it wiped them out, uh, in some cases, multiple times over. And so we spent 15 years trying to figure out a way to make these banks, the risk of a bank failure, go down a lot. And look, big picture, a lot of progress has been made. The amount of capital that exists in most of these banks is significantly higher than it was before. The amount of liquidity that these banks are holding against their short-term uh, liabilities is much higher today than it was before. But there has to be, you, you have to have some asset to put that capital into those, <clears throat> to create that liquidity. And there was a lot of incentives to hold, you know, treasuries and, and, and agency MBS because those are the things that were yielding, <clears throat> but also low capital risk and, uh, and liquid. And so, you know, what we saw was a, an outcome of the regulatory regime combined with, frankly, a bit of imprudence, you know, taking a, while we all said that, right, you know, while the Fed and others said rates were going to be low for a long time, it's not like, you know, anyone who was holding this, these securities must, should have recognized that there was duration risk and many of the sophisticated institutions did and do and hedge their exposure as a function of that. And so now we're getting to, you know, we're getting to a problem that is mostly concentrated in, you know, smaller institutions that have operated either more risk, more in a riskier way or in <clears throat> a way that is um, in, in a way that's imprudent. And, you know, those institutions incentivized by the Fed's behavior, by the regulatory framework, uh, hit by the Fed's behavior, raising interest rates in the overall late cycle inflationary environment. Yeah, a couple of them, you know, are are made some bad choices and are paying for it. I think the real question is how do we, you know, but big picture, like I put something out yesterday, like the order of magnitude we're talking about here is like one tenth of what the financial crisis was, even in the most extreme scenario and on, on this duration exposure. And if the Fed provides enough liquidity so these bonds can be held to maturity, they're by and large, they pay exactly what, you know, not by and large, they do pay what they were intended to pay, what the yield was when they were bought. And so maybe there's some NIM compression. It's not that bad. So big picture here, like take it from a guy who was in the middle of the banking crisis 15 years ago. This ain't nothing. Um, it's annoying. We need to adjust the regulations. We need to figure out how not to get banks into this position. But at a big picture level, it's not that big a deal. And you can see that functionally in what's going on with asset markets, in particular, when you look at stock markets, credit markets, et cetera, all of those markets, like stocks are up in this crisis, right? Stocks are up through this crisis. It's what crisis? I keep calling this a crisis in quotation marks for a reason, because it's not that big a deal with the context of the overall macroeconomic scenario and the context of what a real banking crisis looks like. This is nothing. Thank you, Bob. So I'm going to spin. <laughs> oh, I, love I love it. It's a lot of really good talking points that I'm sure we'll get some feedback from the rest of the panelists here after my question to Jim. 
here. So, Jem, before we dive deeper into comments and what's been said so far, and Randy, we'll get to you right after this question as well. So, Jem, who is responsible for the problem? And in better terms, who's responsible for the fallout and solution going forward? You'd mentioned two things. One was on the miscommunication by the Fed regarding regular failure. And the second, on TD Ameritrade, you said that it's frustrating for the Fed. You said they want to pause because there's not clarity. And you think that Powell is going to speak to get the long end of the curve and the Fed is still selling calls, so to speak. Could you explain that a little bit for the folks listening, Jim? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, look, we were very clear that come mid-February that all of, you know, some of the structural flows that have been kind of uh, pushing up the market uh, were going to meet uh, kind of their natural end, which is, you know, the Fed's constant having to push against this wealth effect that's been uh, going on, right? This uh, this 20% rally off the bottom that we got starting in October, November last year. Um, the Fed has been vocally trying to get the, the long end of the curve higher, the, well, the market lower. They, they want yields up at the long end of the curve and they want equity markets down. And, and everything they've been doing has been pushing up against that until, and they got what they wanted at first. Markets came down here, right, right in this window. Um, now, unintended consequences, right, uh, you know, led to kind of uh, this, this uh, you know, call it a bank run, call it whatever you want to call it here. Um, my opinion is that the bigger picture, this is exactly like this rally back in equities that they've now gotten as as a as a function of them selling way out of the money puts or you know you know backstopping these banks call it is, is not what they want. They don't want this positive wealth effect. They don't want um, the speculation back in the market here, uh, and they definitely don't want uh, you know long yields down. Uh, again, we we just last uh, just several several days ago last week got a really hot uh, you know uh, housing starts uh, multi family, you know, starts, you know, there's a little bit of a lag, but, you know, we're up 24% year over year. Uh, you don't, you don't want lower mortgage rates uh, stimulating, you know, going into the spring here, uh, housing, if you've been battling a hot CPI and battling, um, you know, sticky, uh, you know, sticky employment. Um, so I think this is a very interesting Fed meeting. I think a lot of people are getting out over their skis with the Fed, like going to have to reverse course or, uh, you know, pivot. Uh, they, they're going to come back in and try and do what they've been doing. Uh, they've been pretty clear that, that they, they still see the, the inflationary battle as, as front and center. That said, um, you know, I think they were hoping for this being a, uh, an opportunity if they could bring down asset values to pause and, and look around. They, they want markets lower. They keep getting pushed back into the fray uh, because they have to and it has to, to be back in. So I do think the Fed is going to continue to, quote unquote, sell calls, not, not actually sell calls. This is, uh, you know, metaphorical in the sense that they really want to, to put a top on this market, um, make sure that, you know, it, it, the speculation uh, in particular is being taken out of the market. And they will continue to do that because they have to. Otherwise, structural inflation is still very sticky um, and it's a function of the wealth effect and, and all this speculation. So, so I think, I think that's something to, to look for here. I think that's the bigger story. Uh, I think markets have, have really, um, you know, not markets are basically where they were when this all started uh, quick round trip yet yields uh, are significantly lower 
uh, and that is not what the Fed wants um, at all. They wanted to kind of backstop these banks, but they want equity markets lower. So I think that's that's something to be very, you know, don't fight the Fed. Uh, I think that, you know, take them at their word uh, on terms of, you know, where they were last Fed meeting and what they've said uh, since just because they had to backstop some of this and, and ultimately, you know, uh, provide liquidity into what is a, always a tail in banks. Um, that is not the, the bigger picture here. Um, so I would be very cognizant of that going into this this numbers here. Um, you know, I think I think that's the biggest uh, takeaway. Uh, you know, for today, uh, you know, is is they're they're they may be selling way out of the money puts and making sure that the market doesn't get some massive liquidation. That's always their role. Um, they're always going to be there, but um, but that doesn't necessarily mean buy equities. Actually, if anything, um, you know, if you see the adjustment, they're going to want to push back against that, which I think is is uh, is very important. Thank you, Jim. So that was a lot of comments and feedback regarding the original points kind of around responsibility and balance sheets. So Randy, thank you for being patient thus far. I'd love to hear your full thoughts addressing what's been said so far. And I'm going to leave this topic open to the panel here. So everyone, while Randy's given his two cents here, please feel free to raise your hand and we'll get you in that queue to chime in. Yeah, I I agree with every everybody's saying and i absolutely agree this is not 2008 and i think you know most banks are very very strong um i think the thing that you know this btfp program is absolutely extraordinary i mean, i've never even you guys may have i've never even read about anything like this where we're going to lend at par i know your collateral's worth 70 80 cents 90 cents but we'll lend you full part I've never known that to be done. Um, by the way, also, here's our rate today. It's going to be lower than anything else you can borrow from. Home loan bank, discount windows, CDs, um, current deposit rates, you know, if you're going to be competitive, you know. So please use this. And also, uh, if the rate is lower tomorrow, go ahead and we'll roll it into the new rate. We'll continue to do that for as long as you want. So to me, it's, it, 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 it says two things. We know what we did. We, we know what we've put you through. We know that we repriced most of your assets, the lowest yields in history in 2021. And we know we just crushed all your assets, uh, valuations with 450 or so more uh, basis point hikes. So, you know, and, and to me, like I said earlier, I think they're just trying to buy time. I think that's where we all just, where I disagree with everybody the most is just that, I can see what's coming for these banks. And look, man, we need them. They're the community. They're, they finance the economy. We need them. And, you know, even though my assets are going to reprice, they're going to reprice pretty slow because duration's extended, okay? That's the bonds that I sold to these banks. The, it's different on their loan portfolios, particularly CRE, commercial real estate. Those are done in about five to 10 year fixed, you know, between five and 10 year fixed rate. They're coming. There was a Bloomberg article just recently. There's like, you know, 900 billion or whatever, getting ready to reprice this year or next year. Now that can be extended. See, this is going to be the, the new sort of phase we're entering here is that these banks have the ability to, you know, guy comes in and says, look, I, I cannot afford, to refinance this property from four and a half to six and a half percent. I go, I can't cover the debt coverage given the cash flow out of that property. And, and by the way, that's way worse for offices. 
okay? My, one of the guys in my firm that have eyes on this saying, look, it's probably 10% for the office. So that's coming. And, and so what these guys, the banks can do is they can extend six to 12 months, but then regulators come in and say, okay, you got to stop doing that. You can't do that anymore. You, you got to, this thing has to mature. You got to refi it. It, it. There has to be a process. Then it comes down to, all right, do I get the keys or, you know, do we find somebody to buy the property? You know, it's those complications are coming. And that's personally, that's what I think is going to, I think that's what's going to motivate the Fed to, uh, they got to soften this at some point. Thank you, Randy. Michael and Bob, I see your hands up. Let's go, Michael, first, then we'll kick over to Bob. Well, I think, I think where I fundamentally disagree with Randy is, is what is the Fed trying to accomplish big picture wise? Because, because if the goal, I mean, if you, if you take the Fed at its word for, in terms of its mission over the last 15 months, um, um, you can almost think of it as a, as a single mandate Fed right now, right? It is to get that inflation genie back into the box. Now, I agree that monetary policy is a blunt tool to do it, but it's the only tool they got. And so how do they do that? They need to lower the aggregate demand curve for everything. And how do you do that? You need to, st- you need to create a slowdown in the economy and uh, make unemployment go up. Well, 3.6%, the Fed has, has, uh, has hinted many times that they would probably be okay with a full percentage increase in the unemployment rate. But so this is where, this is where I think people need to realize that that is not a loss of 20,000 jobs or 200,000 jobs. That's a loss of a million and a half to 2 million jobs. From that perspective, there is a lot of wood to chop. uh, You know, if that is, if that is really uh, sort of the goal. And so, and I'm, and I, I don't want to sound callous about it, but this is where the, the earlier point that I made about inflation being the regressive tax that uh, that impacts 100% of the people. Well, the Fed has to think about the other 338 million people in the population. Yes, it's going to really suck for an additional 2 million unemployed, but the cost of living is very, very high. And it, and we have not seen a structural inflation issue like this in decades. So I think I think that is where uh, sort of this you know this is different this time, and it's so. I've been saying this for the last year and a half uh, uh, on Twitter, basically um, saying that look, in, in because we've had decades and decades of liquidity lottery, we've all forgotten what's enabled enabled that. A liquidity lottery to paper over every single financial crisis since the 90s. It's the lack of structural inflation. If you if you look at core PCE since the since the early 90s until now, it's been basically well behaved within like a two to two and a half percent range. But this time, it is really out of bounds and offsides. So uh, that really really limits the Fed's degrees of freedom. And frankly, again. Back to all the points earlier, the trade-off is simply not here yet. I'll, 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 th- I'll say that the trade-off will be here if unemployment's at four and a, four and a half percent. Then, then there's a real trade-off, but the trade-off's not here. 
Thank you, Michael. Bob, anything to add there? And then Randy, I'll have you chime in after. I saw you unmuted there. Well, I think it, it's important when you're thinking about banks and the challenges that banks face to understand how these cycles play off, play out over time, which is the big risk to a bank is immediate risk of, mar of being forced to remark their asset book, which then causes depositors, causes equity holders and other people in the capital stack and you know risking depositors, uh, creates risk that they're going to the bank is going to go broke and they're going to incur losses. And that's the core risk. And that's essentially what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank, right? Which is securities that were remarked, that created losses, that caused concern about you know, the viability of the bank and then created a bank run. I think it's very different when we start to talk about other elements of the balance sheet that frankly take a really long time to play out. So a lot of people today, and, and, and the reason why I, I, I wanted to, to talk about this for just a moment, are, are highlighting commercial real estate is going to be a risk. Absolutely. Commercial real estate will be a risk. Right now, the charge-offs on commercial real estate for small banks in the fourth quarter of 2022 was two basis points. Right? I just want to like, think about that. Two basis points was the charge-off rate, the annualized charge-off rate, which is essentially zero. And the reality is the banks, when it comes to the loan books, have a lot of time for these dynamics to play out, both in terms of the fact that they are earning some NIM on those assets, which help offset losses so they can remain profitable. But then also when those, bond, when those loans come due, they have the ability to restructure that debt, extend it, et cetera. And so if so, first of all, we're nowhere close to that being an issue. When over the course of the next three to five years, we get to a point where that those sorts of loans are an issue, we're likely to see regulatory relief that allows for the restructuring of that debt to push it out further and further. And that's really how bank regulators through all time have handled credit problems that are non-immediate for the banking system. That's how you prudently handle it so you don't ruin the overall banking system. We're likely to see the same thing. And so really all we're concerned about right now are these securities that are getting booked fast and we have a great backstop for that in place so that you know they don't have to take the losses immediately. You put that all together and sure, bank, small banks may not be leveraging up their balance sheet fast here uh, over the course of the next year, but there, there, there will not be a crisis in small banks anytime soon. I, I want to follow up a little Thank bit on the uh, yeah, go ahead. real estate side. So there's this really good Odd Lots episode uh, this this past week on commercial real estate. And a couple of really good points that stood out to me was that you know, commercial real estate is, uh, you know, it's an asset that's comprised of many different subcategories, each with their own different fundamentals. We have things like office space, which are not doing well because, as we know, many people are working from home. But you also have things like, say, multifamily rentals or industrials that, that are doing fine. So when, you, when you're thinking about commercial real estate as an asset class, it, it may be more that uh, you have these office spaces that are not doing well, but those are actually the outlier. And another point that I thought was really good was that, so you make these loans, say, five, ten years ago, and now they have to reprice. But... Um, you know, over the past few years, property values have increased significantly. 
So let's say five years ago, you made, you've, uh, somebody bought $100 in property, $50 in equity, $50 in loans from a bank. Well, today, maybe that property is worth 130, 150. So from a lender's perspective, a bank lender, there's a lot more equity in that property. And so, you know, that kind of insulates them from significant losses. I, I also want to touch upon Michael's point about having this facility here, um, giving the Fed more room to hike. I think that's a really important point. So I would remind everyone of what happened last year with the Bank of England. So last year we had some kind of accident in the gilt market. The Bank of England went in, did some emergency purchases, solved the problem, and then went back to hiking rates. Now, the central banking community is really aware of uh, what's happening now, that they're moving into a very restrictive policy stance that they haven't done in a decade. And the financial sector is opaque, interconnected, and there are some points of fragility. Uh, Governor Bowman from the Fed gave a good speech on this, uh, the first of this month. And she was saying that, yeah, we might have to be able, we might have to do some targeted operations somewhere uh, because, you know, maybe somewhere something could break. We have to be able to duct tape, duct tape that together uh, until we get inflation under control to continue to do our monetary policy stance. And we're seeing that play out in real time. We had, from my perspective, some some banks that uh, in California, not well managed, they went bust. So are we really just gonna cut rates and do QE when we still have inflation so high? No, we, we can have, we can address this in a targeted way. We can have this bank lending facility, which as Randy mentioned, is just unprecedented and totally out of character for our central bank. Anyone who knows anything about central banking knows you got to lend against good collateral, punitive rates and against solvent borrowers. There's nothing like that in this bank lending facility here, but it does allow um, this problem to be resolved in a targeted way. And if the Fed chooses, they can continue to hike without worrying that these unrealized losses will cause uh, additional trouble to the banking sector. Let me, you mind if I hop in here real quick? I, Joseph, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think this is what people miss. People uh, broadly think of Fed stimulus or balance sheet as uh, everything is created equal, right? Like no matter what kind of facility the, the Fed uses, like you just add, the, add them all up and do like net liquidity. Um, the reality is not all liquidity is created equal. Um, if I go sell way out of the money puts or, or protect the tail um, it, you know, it's not the same thing as uh, buying stock, right? Uh, you know, what, I, what do I mean by that? Just because they're, they're taking the tail off the market, uh, the, the extreme tail by deleveraging kind of most, some of the most speculative, um, you know, risks uh, out there in the market, uh, namely, uh, you know, tech and, and, and the problem with duration that, that comes with uh, increasing uh, interest rates. Um, that doesn't mean the market should rally hard. Yes, there's a delta component to, to selling that proverbial put. But what they're really doing is they're taking off that tail and they're allowing themselves to, as you mentioned, raise interest rates more if they need to without being scared that the whole system will fall apart. And I think that's an important distinction. That's not, you know, um, just because they went and backstopped um, all of these these banks doesn't mean uh, they're they are giving a green light to, uh, to beta, uh, actually quite the contrary to your point, I think they're opening up uh, the ability to continue down the path which they are walking down currently. 
Thank you. So Randy, I want to get your comments, but I also want to add a little bit of backframing to it. You said in creating a liquidity crunch, which is the deflationary, that that's exactly why they created the very generous BTFP for liquidity. And they want more time to keep rates up to bring inflation down. NIM will also, <clears throat> excuse me, NIM will be slow to compress too much. Banks are adding prevailing rate loans as well. The Fed needs time. Banks need time. So, Randy, I would love your thoughts here on what the speakers have said so far. Well, so, you know, for, respectfully, for, you know, take the Fed for its word. In my time in this since 1988, they raise rates on their own terms and the markets make them cut rates. Something breaks or the market goes against them. And they're forced down. I mean, this is the whole idea of, of, of Greenspan's conundrum. He, he, he didn't understand it because the bond market understood, I know where you're going. I know what you're going to do. And it's coming. And you're going to have to reverse course. And this is what we do this every single time. Why, you know, I understand there's an inflation issue here. But my problem is, like, you've already raised 450. Why not give it some time? But that's like the, the adult in the room would say, look, we've done a lot. We know we're creating some pain. We're going to try to give you some, a little bit of help to try to avoid some catastrophes. But you know what? I mean, that's what I think you should do today. I mean, you won't. I think he ha with Fed Funds futures at 80%, which I actually think is oddly low, I think he's going to cut 25. He has to. But to me, come on and say, look, we've done so much already. We're starting to see signs and, and that's, uh, of you know inflation coming down. And Take point out what the you know the New York Fed has been setting out. I've seen them making statements about you know month over month inflation's coming down in this category. The BLS puts up inflation's way down, and so with he could go up and say those things and say, look, we've done so much so fast. We know there's some stress, so we're going to sit and we're just going to watch this thing for a little bit. But we're still committed to making sure that comes down. So I'm not saying we're not going to raise rates again, and I'm not saying. I'm going to cut, but at least pause, man. And, you know, Joe, you know, Joseph, you make a great point about all the other categories. You've got apartments, you've got industrial, you've got retail, you know, all that CRE lending. Office is a standout, but let me just tell you, in all those categories, all that lending is competitive, guys. And the way that those loans were to get the business, you know, in the last five years, you know, it, it's pretty tight on the cash flow. So when you take your refinancing rate up 150, 200 basis points, that's a problem, okay? That right there is going to hurt the valuation of that property immediately because, you know, if they haven't been able to keep up, you know, raising rates and raising rentals and all that, it, it's going to have an effect on those valuations. And that's, that, that's coming. It's going to come. Now, is it going to crush banks? No, but it's going to continue to compress net interest margin and it's going to continue to cause, you know, I think some banks some problems, especially the ones who are, you know, high loan to value and a concentration in CRE. And there's some names out there that are really concentrated in, in you know, something like construction lending and things like that. So, yeah, they always use their words. They're always confident until they get punched in the face and then they're like, oh yeah, okay, well, we didn't see that coming. And, you know, I mean, so I, that's what I'm trying to say is, you know, look out for these, these small little signs, you know, and, you know, I think Bob or somebody mentioned, you know, the 0.2% default on commercial or whatever. 
Well, you know, I'm feeling really good. You know, when I jump out of a building at 20 floors, I'm okay for 99% of the ride. And then bam, I'm dead. So we don't, I don't need to see the pain right now. I'm trying to tell everybody it's coming, man. And it's, and if they raise rates more, it's only going to get worse. So real quick, I see your hands, Michael and Jem, but I want to pivot back to something that Bob brought up for Jem here. So Bob, <clears throat> so, uh, so Jem, we're not jumping out of buildings, right? Not quite. Uh, Bob brought up a point regarding the risks of regional banks. On TD Ameritrade, you said that the banks, uh, the banks that they wanted out were tech and crypto, and they wanted to get the froth out, the speculation. Jem, what are your thoughts regarding the risks in the banking system? And then after that, I have a few questions for Bob and Joseph regarding the FDIC, and then I want to get to Michael's comments as well. Yeah, um, the, the point there was essentially that, you know, the Fed wants, look, again, they, you know, this is kind of, we'll address some of Randy's points, uh, you know, which I don't exactly agree with. The Fed wants to pause they would love to pause they they aren't sure of the path um there's a lot of uh different uh you know components within the fed you know saying hey look there's a lag here we need to stop and see the problem is the second the market got a whiff of a coming pause it uh it it priced in a pivot and we got a 20 percent rally off the bottom right and then what happened everything following was hot cpi continued very hot employment numbers. Um, there is a reflexive effect to what they do. They are not operating in, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a world where what they do doesn't ultimately, you know, or what they say doesn't ultimately affect the outcome. So they've been trying to pause for some time, but they can't, and they're, have, they're being forced into kind of talking down markets. And markets aren't listening because markets don't listen. Markets... Uh, ultimately, you know, are going to force the Fed's hand. They're, they're reflexive. So I think that's, that's very important. That said, the, the Fed, you know, how did the Fed take out some of that, that speculation from the market, right? They, they have to do it where, you know, they have to try and do it where the speculation is, is, is the greatest. Um, and, and at the same time, uh, I think, you know, they want to take off the tail at the same time. So, you know, the well, market Bob, again Bob, is, Bob, this, yeah, this yeah, Randy, let me just, if you don't mind, because I, I think conversational helps here a little bit, but it's happening, man. There's, there's, all my clients are, are hunkering down. I mean, they really are. They're all going, you know, I asked them, I put out, a, you know, or do you plan to grow? Do you plan to uh, stay the same? Or do you plan to shrink? And it was between kind of sh shrink in a sort of a have-to way and at least stay stable. Very few said they plan to grow. So it's happening. I mean, that, that Randy, unemployment is 3.6%. It's the lowest okay. ever. They, they're adding, we're adding jobs, not decreasing, right? Like, just go look at the numbers. It's not like you can say it's happening based on talking to XYZ client. That's not what's happening based on the numbers. Um, the Fed would like to pause. They would like to do what you're saying. They would like to stop and like take a breath. 5%, 4.5% is a lot. Uh, you know, the problem is the numbers are not supporting their case. They are, they are having a problem. To uh, Mike, Michael's point, like the Fed uh, pretty publicly came out, you know, uh, you know, was, Powell was basically talking about how he does want interest, you know, in, uh, unemployment at 4.6%, not 3.6. He does want 2 million jobs off the table. Like it's, 
he's saying that like it's just not happening the opposite is happening and until it does happen they can't pause um so i mean it's not happening yet that's the problem all right so real quick bob let's kick it to you then i've got questions for joseph on the fdic and then i'm gonna spin back to michael for more comments so bob go ahead yeah i think one of the important things that i've been highlighting uh, as we've sort of turned our attention and focus to the banking system and its provision of credit, is that uh, if you look at the timely data, what you see is actually that banks, uh, through you know, really starting mid last year and through the through you know the most recent period, had already meaningfully slowed the magnitude of credit creation that they were providing into the economy, and you know, close to essentially zero over the course of the last few months. And so, I think. There's been a lot of focus on will small banks cut back, will large banks cut back as a function of what's going on here. The answer is small banks and large banks have cut back. Now, that's a really important thing to think about because when you're thinking about what the credit supply is relative to the aggregate economic activity, what we see is that growth continues to be running at 2 to 3%, even though credit is... Uh, has, has slowed and is running at zero. Now, how can that happen? What that? How can, how can there be such a difference? And I think that really highlights the core dynamic happening in the cycle, which is very different from every cycle that we've experienced in our lifetimes, which is that what we're seeing is a wage and income-driven cycle. And that's a, that is a really important thing because what that means is that, yeah, the the, 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 the small banks are going to be, in, you know, are, are going to, you know, just kind of plot along and not do much. The big banks are going to plot along and not do much. But that is not going to solve the inflation problem. Right. The way that we solve the inflation problem is by slowing income growth. And the way that we slow income growth is by loosening the labor markets. And we haven't made much progress yet. Right. Look at the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, you know, one of the best time he reads on things. Nothing's changed in the last six or 12 months. We have a long way to go on that. And I know that the Fed sees that. <laughs> the question is, are they going to do something about it? Or are they going to get skittish given a little bit of stress in the system? So thank you. Now, Michael, I'm going to come to you in just a moment, but I want to hear Jem's response to those responses as it were. And then I've got some FDIC questions for Joseph. And then I want to hear your thoughts, Michael. So Jem first, any response here? Yeah. I mean, look at the end of the day, I couldn't agree more. Uh, we're in a demand side economy. This is not the last 40 years, uh, credit creation, uh, growing from, uh, you know, from, from the business side, this is labor, uh, pricing power onshoring, uh, protectionist, different, different growth, right? We have, this is a completely different model fueled by, by fiscal. Um, it continues to be front and center labor, uh, pricing, you know, labor power is, is, a, is, is the story and it's going to be the story. And until you deal with getting that, uh, kind of labor component down and it's not just percentage of employed, it's wage growth on the bottom people, you know, the velocity of this money is one and it's just a completely different uh, market uh, economy than, than the last 40 years. And I think people are having a hard time adjusting to that reality. Um, you know, it's not about asset, uh, asset expansion. It's about, uh, you know, people on the bottom actually having more 
more uh, settings. All right. So thank you all for all of your comments there. I want to spin over to FDIC here and we'll start with Joseph and then Michael, I'm going to spin to you to get your comments there as well. But first, Joseph, you said, uh, quote, we should massively raise FDIC insurance now. The level of deposits in the system is in part due to monetary policy, QE, increased bank deposits by trillions, not to mention inflation is high. So, Joseph, why is it important to do so, and what is the right amount to raise to? Yeah, well, actually, first, I'll, I'll make a few points in response to what was just said. And I totally agree with Jem that the Fed really does want to uh, pause and so forth. Like, I remember in the January FOMC, Powell was quite adamant in disinflation, 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 and that turned out to be incorrect. And so he kind of had to do a 180 after in response to data. And like Randy and Bob have suggesting, we, we do see bank credit creation slowing. So it does seem to work. But one thing I'd highlight about the US though, is that we have very strong capital markets. And so a lot of financing, well, if you're getting a home mortgage, for example, about half of that, 50% of mortgages are financed in the capital markets. And so when you see treasury yields declining and so forth, even if the banks are tightening up, you're actually gonna be facing lower borrowing rates. And not to mention fiscal spending, as Jim mentioned. Okay, Wait, just, FDI... Joseph, just two. St- I'm sorry, it's Randy. I think it's like 80 percent of the mortgages in the United States are like 300 basis points out of the money. So yeah, you know, so just refis are dead, and that means it's going to slow that whole process. So I think any kind of inflation coming out of the housing market, I think it's dead for a long time. Just my two cents on that. What I do note, though, that is that when mortgage rates suddenly crept from 7% to, let's say, 6% in January, it seemed like things were reaccelerating. So uh, we'll see as, as things go on. Um, well, but that's about a good the point. F- you're, you're right on that. I, you're absolutely right. About the FDIC insurance, I think, so like Randy also mentioned earlier, part of the reason that we have Silicon Valley Bank and all these guys flush with deposits is because of quantitative easing. When the Fed expands its balance sheet, when it goes and does QE, um, it you know prints a lot of money and someone at the end of the day has to hold that money. Now, to be clear, banks have a lot of ways to manage their balance sheet. They can push these deposits away and make them go into money funds and the reverse repo facility. But overall though, if you not everyone does that. And so if you have the level of deposits in the system rise, more and more people are going to be above the 250,000 FDIC insurance limit. So, in a sense, the Fed has a role in creating more uninsured deposits, making it more prone to panics in the banking sector. So that's one point. Uh, the other point is, of course, we totally bent the rules to help these uh, VC guys in Silicon Valley. And it would only be fair if we would treat everyone equally and in fully insured deposits, and it would immediately end uh, any potential, any banking panic that stems from um, the fear of insolvency in banks. So the... For, for something like that to happen, it can't be done by Treasury or the executive unilaterally. It has to be done through an act of Congress. So that's a very slow process. I imagine that there are ways around this, and uh, the administration has been very creative in, in finding ways to get through this. So uh, maybe they can find another solution. It's hard to know what the right price, what the right level of FDIC insurance should be. Um, but, you know, inflation is is pretty high. So if we set the FDIC insurance at 250,000 a decade ago, maybe it should be higher. Maybe at least we should adjust it for inflation. Um, it, it seems like that would make a lot more sense than just having a, 
a, a fixed number that doesn't change, even though inflation in, is high and even though uh, the Fed keeps pumping the system with more deposits. All right, real quick, we've got about three minutes before the decision is out as far as rate hikes. But before we spin into more questioning, Michael, I want to hear your thoughts here and what you're thinking regarding uh, to what people have said so far in the FDIC. Michael. Actually, um, I want to go back to a comment that Fed, that uh, uh, Joseph made earlier about the, the BOE um, hiking even after um, alleviating the guilt crisis. I shared a tweet in the Nest to basically show you uh, how the U.S. Is, is positioned macroeconomically relative to the U.K. and the EU. Now, this, this, again, highlights the notion that transmission mechanisms for hiking are very, very uneven across different economies. But you have to ask yourself if even the UK and the, e it's the BOE and the ECB are able to continue hiking, given that their GDPs are at the zero bound and they have both higher unemployment than the US with much higher inflation. How is it that the Fed is going to be spooked by a situation where the S&P just rallied 14% off its lows and NASDAQ is off 23% off its lows? I mean, there, there just doesn't seem to be anything broken. Far, far from it. And um, I also wanted to just point out that, you know, again, this use of rifles, meaning surgical actions, precludes uh, the need for bazookas. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I've been saying that this BTFP, uh, the market seemed to be reading into a BTFD signal, uh, and it's really not. Um, so I just wanted to say that right before uh, the Fed decision here. Thank you, Michael. While we wait for numbers, does anyone else have any comments on what was said so far? Well, I, I would just say that if nothing's breaking, why do we have so many bazookas? You know, and here it comes. I'll let you guys go. I would say fair point. Does anyone have a retort there? All right. Yeah, so all we'll the, just. Yeah, all the numbers yeah, coming go up. That's what we're looking at. All right. Looks like 25 bips, which I believe was pretty expected at this point. I think uh, initially we had. Just not too terribly long ago, before all the banking stuff started, we had projections for 50, and then some projections obviously changed pretty dramatically following what happened with the bank. So it looks like we've got 25 BPS this time around. Does that change, or does that solidify kind of what you folks were thinking so far going into things today? Anybody feel free to chime in. So I just know some note that the dot plot so is unchanged for 2023 and marginally higher for 2024. Uh, compared to the December thing. So that that's immediately what I was focusing on. Basically, the, the Fed is not moving off of, right? Uh, nothing's changed, and that's kind of the point, right? Everybody that thinks that what just happened here changed things dramatically, uh, you know, uh, in, in the last several weeks, it's it, not true. If anything, uh, again, the markets have changed, but the Fed hasn't, and that is a problem for the Fed. And it seemed the Fed vote was pretty unanimous as well, straight across the board. Randy, do you have any thoughts here? Uh, not really. I mean, I just see the 10-year yield coming down. I see the 
BTF B index is seems to be continuing. So the you know the uh, overnight one year index they're using is down about uh, ten basis points. So I, that's what I'm going to watch. Yeah, I watch the bond market. <laughs> I want to see what they're thinking on this. I said yesterday that um, you know I, I'm watching the yield curve very closely, as I'm sure everybody here is. But you know when when that one year point started pricing in. 75 to 100 basis points of cuts this year, I basically said, look, I, I actually think that that plateau uh, that we had a, just a month ago is going to return. And when that returns, uh, look out for risk assets because I, I think the market is is just going to find itself off sides here. Thank you, Michael. Bob, do you have any initial thoughts here on the 25 BIP site? Yeah, I mean, mostly what we expected now, I think we're rolling up our sleeves and looking at the dots, which uh, which are worth, uh, you know, looking at December, uh, December 23 median projection 5.1, December 24 median projection 4.1, and then December 25, 3.1. So, you know, certainly if you look at this uh, and you think that there's going to, you know, the, the, the Fed is suggesting that a bunch of, a bunch of cuts later in the year uh, are not where we're going to be, um, I think is, is certainly um, interesting. If I'm seeing this right. Sorry, just processing the dots and the market action. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem. Joseph, do you have anything additional here before we move on to more questions as you're looking through the numbers? You know, I, I think that was a good point Randy made about why we have so many facilities. Uh, you know, when I when I see when I hear that, I interpret it in like with what happened the past weekend. I think the policymakers are just, you know like we say, they're always fighting the last war. So they're always nervous of something, something, you know, might break. And what was remarkable to me was how, what was, could have been a legitimately big problem, the failure of a GSIB over the weekend just kind of went away overnight. So the policymakers are kind of determined to cut off any tail risk in terms of the markets and things like that. So market is always going to assume that, uh, the policymakers are, are very afraid and dovish. So I, I can understand the market. What's easiest for the market would be to just um, assume that rates will be cut and asset prices will go higher since policymakers are afraid of anything bad happened. That cuts off left tail risk and uh, makes the outcomes biased towards higher asset prices. Well, how about just avoidance of crushing asset prices? I mean, that, that's kind of what I, I mean, that's what we're seeing clearly in, in all the bank's portfolios is it's not about, well, I guess it is about raising them, but it's, it's not about taking them a, a higher than where they got them. It's about having some reprieve, you know, that, you know, you, you've crushed us into these losses and, and left us kind of naked and thank you for the program. But um, by the way, that program is, is, you know, a, a, a bit fraught with some unexpected, you know, uh, stigma in the future they're begging people not to think that, but I could just tell you again, most of my banks, you know, are, you know, particularly after TARP and all the issues there, you know, they took in a flood of money because they did not take TARP. 
And so they look at this program and it's, it's going to get known. And again, that's another thing that people on, you know, Twitter don't understand is, Oh, you won't know for two years. No, not true. Anybody traded publicly, you have to put that in your 10 Q's and 10 K's immediately. So you have to immediately go to people, your shareholders and say, and your depositors to say, yes, we, we took this money. And then the question becomes why it becomes difficult. So, um, yeah, so that's 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 what I'm looking at there. Thank you, Randy. Jem, I'm curious your initial thoughts and thoughts on the proverbial bazookas uh, and on you know the Fed leaving us naked. Does 25 bips continue this de-robbing, Jem? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I want to be clear. Like this, uh, you know, watch out for this. Uh, if, if balls come in here a little bit uh, on this number, like this is an opportunity. Just. Don't take this kind of as, you know, what, what, what Powell's going to say here, I think, is very important. Um, I think he's going to be pushed back into the fray, unfortunately, given the rally back. And again, they did move in, in yields. Um, we're not the only ones watching uh, the bond market right now. Um, you know, uh, uh, the Fed at the end of the day uh, is providing liquidity, short dated uh, and on the tail um, while trying to take economic liquidity out of the market, uh, which is more the long end of the curve. Um, you know, the, the Fed does not want uh, inflation, uh, you know, inflation like speculation to kind of come back into the market and economic kind of growth uh, to, to be accelerated. Um, so that's, that's my, again, kind of what I've been saying. I do think the positioning, which we have talked about, we're all talking kind of macro here. I'll just kind of say thing here. Um, it, it, uh, more like um, uh, last week in particular. I, I don't think that's a coincidence. We've been talking about this for some time. Everybody out of the area and uh, hedges uh, of any real stuff. That stuff is not working really well um, in this environment. And, and uh, a lot of people who are short Vega to be long game. Um, you know, that is ultimately uh, a trade we haven't seen work in years, decades uh, in any meaningful way for some any meaningful amount of time. Uh, that's something I watch very carefully because we saw some very interesting moves in that relationship. And given how bad positioning has gotten and how overweight's gotten, people are talking about the zero DTA, but I don't think people realize what that means in the sense that people are using that exclusively, and that 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 means people aren't positioned against kind of any long-term secular move. So that's something I'd, I'd watch. The other thing nobody's talked about is NASDAQ versus Russell. The last week and a half has been fairly historic in terms of that that uh, that move. Uh, the, underneath the surface, you're getting some really um, big moves. There's a macro thesis for why it is right. Everybody's talking about, um, uh, you know, this explanation of the reality is all the hedges have duration. Um, and uh, you know, that that has been completely taken out of the market relative to, you know, Jim, looks like you're having some breaking up with connection there, Jim. Uh, just for the quick minute here, see if we can wait for that to level off a bit. I'm going to spin to Bob, and then I might want to come back to you, Jim, regarding being short Vega. That's when you started breaking up. Uh, but first, Bob, very quick, should we be believing this initial market reaction given 25 bips 
it's still technically a rate hike, and the dot plot hasn't really changed, Bob. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, certainly the initial uh, moves in terms of the asset markets would suggest easier than expected. Certainly in the bond market, and uh, tick up and across the equity market. Um, you know, I don't. I I uh, I certainly. Um, Trading between trading the time between you know the uh, the announcement and uh, you know the 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 initial statement and the presser would not be where I would be trading um, a lot of uncertainty in that uh, but you know when you scan across what you know the initial take of this is that um, that you know the Fed is going to be keeping things easy relative to uh expectations and that you know that is uh that's probably not going to be well received uh we'll see what paul says in a few minutes but my guess is that that's not the response that they wanted to this set of conditions can i share a big picture mental model with with the crowd so yeah please so yesterday I retweeted this really interesting and cool graphic of, uh, of the uh, expectations of uh, Fed funds. And it just showed how, you know, the, the so-called omniscient bond market and yield curve is equally uh, as clueless as every other asset class. But when you, when you think about, uh, you know, I think of the risk-free rate as the financial linchpin for all things financial, right? So it is it is tantamount to uh, oscillating the bottommost Jenga uh, Jenga block uh, uh, amidst a, a very wobbly tower, and so when you see these like violent reactions in asset classes across the board, I just want to caution people that I think you're seeing uh, the tip of the whip, if you will. Um, if the if the bottommost uh, Jenga block is that hard to to forecast and read uh imagine trying to read uh a lot of signal content into moves in all of the derivative asset classes couldn't agree more michael thank you for that great great now a great great metaphor uh the reality is you don't the biggest counter trend moves are the markets uh, kind of, this is not a healthy move. We've seen the, the underlying moves are are speaking to kind of this right, this, this market that's kind of very unstable and has a lot of potential energy in it. And that is dangerous. That is a low-critic market and exactly what you, a time you want to be cautious. Yeah, I guess the part of what's being focused on here is at least the in the in the statement uh, the Fed is announced or is acknowledging that the effects of the banking system dynamics are uncertain, and so you know that. I, I, I guess it's the same. You know, in many ways, it's just the same thing over and over again that we've seen from the last couple of these meetings, which is, um, you know, there's all and and indicative as 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 you just said of people trying. It's like there's so much. There is a ton of liquidity in the system. There's still a lot of risk-taking desires in the system. The Fed has not broken that. And so what we see is, you know, it, it almost looks like folks are looking for a reason why they should 
be a buyer of stocks and bonds, uh, and they're looking for that as much as they can into the the presser and 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 er, into any of the indications here, and you know they they focused on that. Thank you. Now, Joseph, do you have any comments here on believing the market or the whiplash of tail risks and playing Jenga? <laughs> I think there's all great comments. I, I really am waiting to see what Chair Powell says in his press conference. As was noted, it seems like so um, before all this excitement happened the past couple of weeks, the expectation, of course, was 50 basis points and a higher dot plot. Now we get 25 and we have a dot plot. That's the same for 2023. But ever so slightly higher for, for next year. So basically, as Bob mentioned, there's, there's no change. And so I think what it really come down to is just how Chair Powell characterizes uh, what happened the past couple of weeks and how he thinks that it will influence his, his path of policy. I think as many people on Twitter have, has commented that um, you know there's, there's a whole lot of uncertainty, so it might not be super useful, but I, I think it's really important to, to understand what he's how he perceives this. And, you know, the market is always thinking that the Fed is, is going to cut rates. That's what the market thinks that the future looks like the past. And over the past 10 years, we've been in a regime where the Fed likes to cut rates. Um, the market has been very wrong for the past uh, year or so. And uh, I, I, I still think they are. But I want to see what Sher Powell says. So, Randy, how do you think the uncertainties will play out in banking given the 25 BPS hike? And, Randy, do you still think the Fed will cut rates soon? And then I'll kick over to comments from anybody else who wants to chime in as well. But first, Randy. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think the 25 basis points means, you know, anything too stressful for my banks. I, I think they're going to, you know, they're going to continue to see deposit decay and they're going to have to, you know, do more borrowings. That's going to compress NIM. So, but they expected that. Um, yeah. I, I still think that, you know, look, when, how many times have we, over the years, have we seen, you know, stocks go limit down and the fed does something. I mean, you know, they're, they're going to protect the system. And if something breaks, everything reverses. And we've just saw something break and it isn't, it isn't just about Silicon Valley, because I think that's a, a whole nother thing going on there. I don't think that's just community bank. And I think we'll find that out later. But, you know, the fact is it, it, it showed an exposure and the Fed came up with a whole new brand pro, you know, program over the weekend. I mean, if that's not alarming, I, I don't know what else could possibly, you know, concern people, particularly everybody seems very positive that everything's OK and they can keep raising rates to six percent. I just don't see that happening. I think, I, I think the stress is coming, and and it's going to be one of, again one of those things that okay, well, you know, we got to undo this. Um, and I want to make one comment before, you know, I mentioned a certain person calls this dog named Nvidia, and I know you don't want me to do that, but financial media, and then you got somebody which I think I can mention. Richard Fisher was out, you know, I think a few days ago claiming that banks did something wrong. And I think that's why I'm here. And, and maybe we'll have to do it another time to talk about that more in depth. But that's the message I'm trying to get to everybody and to, to people on Twitter. You know, maybe there's a bank here that, sure there is, okay? But on the whole, you have to understand banks are really, really good. They're really, really strong. And they were forced into certain situations. So I wish those guys would stop saying 
these bad bankers, these greedy bankers, they, they, they bought bad bonds. It's just not freaking true. Um, and, and that's the main message I want to get to everybody here. Thank you, Randy. Anybody else have any other comments? We've got about 13 minutes before the J-PAL presser, but any other comments? Would love to hear them. I'll jump in, um, just kind of fill some air here. I, I didn't get to finish. I think I, got, I broke up there before, but um, two core major changes in positioning. One, I mentioned Gamma versus Vega. The world is no longer hedged on the kind of longer end of the district distribution of anything. There is short Vega funding, long Gamma. Um, what do I mean by that? If people on, on here are not kind of option nerds, uh, you know, they, you know, we're playing short dated uh, hedges, um, very short dated hedges, uh, you know, have, have replaced all and any structural long-term hedges. And, and if anything, people are funding those with Vega because Vega, quite frankly, hasn't worked for more than uh, a, a week or so at a time um, over what's, you know, essentially 14 years, um, you know, minus the Volpocalypse, uh, you know, which was uh, a short-term blip, uh, really, really nothing to speak of. So that, that world, it, it didn't work last year. Ball got crushed if you were, if you were in that stuff. Mass exodus last year, all into kind of realized Vol hedges, which is the short-dated stuff. The net effect of that is, is, uh, short-term gamma moves are likely to mean revert uh, and, and not play out. Whereas long-term Vega could really find its way going higher into the next, next move. I think as we've seen that, you saw some very interesting counter-trend moves in other, another area too, which I think is very important. Uh, we've both seen commodities as well as the Russell, uh, you know, small cap value really kind of liquidate relative to duration and tech. That's the other big hallmark of positioning. The world went from speculating on calls uh, into the last rally to now speculating on puts, uh, put call uh, ratios went through the roof in tech. Everywhere else, they've been under hedged. So what do you find? What do you, what happens as you go into March OPEX last last week? Um, you know, massive outperformance of tech, and uh, you know the squeeze of, of that that positioning uh, accelerates. That's what we saw. We've been talking about that for weeks leading into that. Not a surprise that we're seeing this counter trend there. Those two hallmarks. Our big position, uh, you know, once they start breaking, it's something to be very cognizant of and, and, and uh, you know, understand that that positioning uh, is big enough for working on new trends. Perfect. Thank you, Jim. So I'm gonna, here we've... Oh, go sorry. ahead. I just wanted to say that I, I think I think the potential rug pull for for uh, risk is isn't so much how high the terminal rate gets. It's how long it stays there. And I expect uh, I'm, I expect Jay Powell to emphasize higher for longer in this speech. We'll see what happens. And on that note, we've got about 10 minutes before the presser. So what I want to do here is, for everybody listening, we're going to stream the audio of j presser here on this same space. And we'll also have the video and live chat on the unusual Twitch. That is unusual, excuse me, twitch.tv slash unusual whales for the video and chat. But before we do that, I want to get closing thoughts from each of our panelists here. And also, please feel free to plug anything you're working on or anything you've got coming out. We'll go right down the line here, just a minute or two each. Closing thoughts, anything you're working on that we can plug here for you today. Let's start with Joseph. Your thoughts? 
Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I always learn from our panelists here. Um, so I agree with Michael. I think that Chair Powell's job is going to have to be able to send that higher for longer message. Uh, because monetary policy isn't just what isn't just toggling the overnight rate. It's also what how the market perceives the path of policy to be. If the market is really convinced that the Fed is just going to cut rates in, in a few months and, you know, we'll go back to uh, the way it was, then, you know, borrowing rates are going to come down. A lot of people are going to have lower borrowing costs and there's a potential there for inflation to reaccelerate. So it's a really, really hard message to send to the market especially since the Fed over the past decade uh, has really shown an inclination to pivot uh, like they did in early 2019. So I write and blog about the markets. If you want to hear more about my thoughts, I have a website, fedguy.com. If you're interested in learning about markets, I have a book called Central Banking 101, bestseller on Amazon, and also I have online courses. Uh, it's a 10 set of 10 courses. The first one is free if you click the free preview. You can find that at fedguy.com as well. Thanks so much. And I must say that book, one of the better reads that anybody can tune into regarding these topics. So thank you as always for coming, Joseph. Michael, any closing thoughts, anything you want to plug here before we get into the j presser? Yeah, thank you for having me as always. Um, yeah, my closing thoughts are that, uh, look, this the risk on, risk off is driven by um, a market that's confused between sort of what I call the, it's the market is still in this bad equals good matrix when the real, at some point, the real economy will be bad as bad. Um, uh, I, I, I want to reiterate that I think these uh, ring fenced actions are, are not quite QE. Therefore, BTFP does not equal BTFD when it comes to, to risk assets, in my opinion. Um, and uh, let's see, what am I working on? I guess the only thing that's really new is uh, this, this uh, sub stack. I, I, ever since my uh, Twitter suspension, I've been putting longer form content on Substack, and I started doing like a weekly recap at, on uh, urbancowboy.substack.com. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Michael. I always love having your input here. Really good back and forth banter today. Bob, anything you want to say before we get to j Anything you want to plug? Uh, no, thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, I love these conversations and and uh, a live nothing better than a sort of lively and spirited back and forth about what's going on. Uh, for those of you who are uh, interested in in what I'm up to, you can check out uh, unlimitedfunds.com, uh, where I've got a blog and uh, also there's links to the there's a link to the uh, HFND ETF, which uh, which we run. Um, so check that out to see if it's uh, if it's right for your portfolio. Um, and then also, you know, check me out on Twitter. I'm, uh, uh, I tweet even when there aren't uh, banking crises afoot about uh, what's going on in macro and things like that. So love to see folks out there. Definitely do that, folks. And, and just kind of as a blanket statement, you should be following all of our panelists today. Really brilliant minds in these macroeconomic topics perfect follows if you're trying to stay up to date on what's happening and kind of the reasoning behind it. So I, I can't stress enough that everybody that's been on this panel so far, definitely worthy of a follow. Maybe even that nice little notification button. Hell. All right, Jim, do you have any closing thoughts here about what we've discussed so far today? And of course, anything you want to plug? Yeah. So uh, a couple, a couple things were mentioned here, which I think are very important to kind of highlight uh, the higher the, the Fed has gone here, 
um, on, on Fed funds, the you know the more we're starting to see what we have always expected, which is you know there's a hollowing out. Call it call it the, the jiggling of that little Jenga. Call it kind of uh, you know uh, all out of like uh, Looks like we're getting some connection issues there again, Jim. Um, sorry about that, and sorry, folks. Jim always has really good things to say. Yeah, pretty choppy here, Jim. But just yeah, it's still pretty bad. Um, but for for Jim, folks, KaiVolatility.com. Check that out. Always tons of really great information there. And Jim is a recurring a recurring guest in our spaces and always has really good insight, especially when it comes to volatility. So thank you as always for coming, Jim. Last but not least, Randy, do you have any closing thoughts here on what any panelists have said and I, anything you could apply? I'll make it, yeah, just I'll make it quick. And, and you have given me permission to say this. so Everybody knows uh, Joseph and I will be on with Jack Farley at forward guidance tomorrow. I'm not exactly sure what time, I think around 11 a.m. Uh, Eastern, but it will air tomorrow. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm a huge fan of Joseph. I I don't know how I found him, but, you know, once I saw his five years New York Fed desk, I'm like, oh, I got to talk to this guy. And I highly recommend his book, uh, as well as Danielle's, DiMartino Booth's. I think they're both a good look into the inner workings of the Fed and what I particularly liked about what Joseph wrote about what I got, one of the main things I got from his book is I always knew there was coordination between central banks. I didn't know to what level his description of how other central bank traders will literally train on the New York desk before they're sent off into overseas, you know, uh, 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 other central banks I thought was fascinating. And so that's, caused me to really pay attention to what other central banks say because i think it's all it is highly more coordinated than than i ever realized um lastly to blow a little sunshine i don't have anything to sell other than jack's thing which i'm super excited about tomorrow um hopefully elon musk is listening because this is exactly what makes twitter awesome i have i'm always telling people on twitter if you hate it it's because you're doing something wrong we have these lovely people that are educated and willing to give us their time. And, you know, and I know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm always the pessimist in the crowd. That's what a bond guy does. That's just, that's my job. I have to look for what's terrible in life uh, when I sell these bonds, what's going to kill me. So that's my nature. I love being uh, challenged by all these really lovely people. And I just appreciate all you guys so much. And thanks for letting me be here. Thank you. And thank you for coming as always. Like I said, these panels, I always learn so much. It seems like everybody learns a lot from each other. And even when there's dissonance, everything's always so respectful. People, even when they don't see the eye to eye, they're just, you know, here to learn, explain their part. And I mean, hey, that's the whole point of these, right? So people can learn. So thank you all for coming. We've got the JPL presser starting in about a minute. Uh, so if you are not following our panelists today, please get on that. You're going to learn a lot from these folks. They're, you know, tweeting more or less every day. We'll be streaming the audio for the presser right here 
on this space as well as on the Unusual Whales Twitch with live chat at twitch.tv slash Unusual Whales. If you came in late and missed anything during this space, don't worry about it. It was recorded and we will be releasing it as an Unusual Whales podcast on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. So if you missed anything, don't sweat it. You didn't miss anything. Thanks again, everybody, for coming. Just a minute here. We'll get the audio to the presser going, and then we'll send y'all on your way.